welcome to Health to Be Determined, a podcast about the social determinants of health. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Gabriel Kaplan, board president of the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Dr. Kaplan speaks with Anna Noves, executive director of the Rhode Island Department of Health, about how Rhode Island has graded funding to address health equity. Hello, Anna, and welcome to uh, the podcast. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. I'm glad to be able to join you. Can you set the stage for us in terms of the chronic disease burden in Rhode Island? What are some of the more common concerns and how is the state doing in addressing them? I think we have kind of basically the same general concerns as uh, everybody else and the same burden of chronic disease as everybody else, in some a little more. So Rhode Island, 56% of all adults have at least one chronic disease and one in four people have multiple chronic conditions. That is slightly higher than the national average of 45%. From a diabetes perspective, uh, we have 9.4% of the state's adult population know that they have diabetes. And from a program's perspective, we've been trying to address it from uh, the traditional big community education campaigns. We've had the diabetes prevention work, the DPP evidence-based programs. And so we've been rethinking about how uh, we change our language in terms of our campaigns. We're not calling it a diabetes campaign because when someone has diabetes, it's already too late. So we're trying to see how we can get people to pay attention early. Cancer continues to be uh, an issue in Rhode Island. Uh, while we've had very strong results with screening, uh, and uh, we have an enormous number of women being screened. In fact, we, we used to even claim that we had eliminated our disparities, racial disparities in terms of screening because we have more black women being screened, but we still have disparities because of the mortality and the burden of disease itself in the, the, the black women. And asthma, it's another area from a chronic disease perspective that we pay attention with uh, an estimated of 11% of Rhode Island adults that currently have asthma, which is also higher than what you have for the adult uh, U.S. population at 8.3%. So that's some of the data, and we've approached it from the traditional ways, with education, with uh, engagement, clinical, community connections, but that's where we also start thinking about the impact that the social determinants had, and we start our approach, start changing the way we responded to it. Rhode Island established an innovative approach to population health that's garnering national attention. You developed health equity zones to impact health issues in their own unique microcosms and locations. Tell us a bit about why and how those were established. So for some of the reasons that I talked about before, the fact that we, even when we made uh, good uh, improvements in our population health outcomes, uh, when you start diving deep in the data and you start looking at uh, how well is the overall population doing, we realized that we still had enormous disparities by race and ethnicity, by geographic location, by gender, by education. And most important for us was the fact that the next generation, as I like to say, my children generation, and if you have children, your children generation, had a lower life expectancy than we did. So where did we got things wrong and how could we change the way we did public health so we could truly improve population health outcomes. That's where our um, 
health equity zones came from, because if we truly believe that the things that impact our health are things such as education, as housing, as employment, your level uh, of how much money you make, having insurance, not having insurance, those things that impact one's life, the social and environmental determines the only way for us to address them was through a place-based approach. And uh, the belief that if you address those, you're going to be able to impact all of the other chronic diseases that I talked about, diabetes, cancer, asthma, because those are the same determinants. So we've created this place-based initiative uh, that is truly a community-led uh, initiative where communities are coming together, defining their geographic location or area, the zone. They are either creating new collaboratives or maintaining, expanding uh, existing collaboratives, doing an assessment not only of gaps that exist within the community and need, but also of the assets that exist within the community, the level of community readiness to take ownership of their issues and change them. So they do their needs assessment, they do their assets assessment, they identify their priorities, they then use evidence-based interventions, a menu of interventions that we provided them, and uh, select uh, how they're going to respond to the priorities that they identify, and then they implement that plan of action that is a community-driven plan of action uh, built by, developed and implemented by the collaborative that has what we call meaningful representation of residents, not just the usual suspects, but also an expectation for engagement with a variety of cross-sector of public and private uh, stakeholders, including residents. And then these uh, health equity zones uh, deploy the strategies uh, that you offer. Do they have to uh, deploy strategies from a number of different areas, or can they really customize the local effort? So it's totally customized by their own prioritization process that is, as I said, community-led. The way we design the program is that the community identifies their priorities and they develop a plan of action. We provide them with the menu of intervention, and that is is given to us by the different program streams that we have within the health department. But one community may decide to focus on obesity, for example, and another community may decide to focus on maternal and child health. Another one may decide to focus on drug overdose. So they all change their focus, and as long as they use evidence-based interventions, we are able to fund those interventions uh, with, uh, with funding from the different funding streams. We also stressed to them that they needed to do not just, this was not a service-driven um, uh, response, it needed to be policy-level change interventions that were truly improving the social and environmental conditions in one which leave. We all know these kinds of programs have to have some funding source. Rhode Island braided funding from multiple sources to conduct and sustain this work. Can you tell us how this was implemented in more practical terms? How did you identify which funding sources you could use? And then what were some of the lessons learned and challenges you found in braiding from different funding sources? Well, that was not easy. Let me start by saying that <laughs> because we know that uh, braiding funding is not the most evident thing to do. But that was the only way we foresee that was possible for us to have this comprehensive place-based local approach to the community needs. 
And so we, what we did, we pulled together, we braided funding from HRSA, CDC, CMS with state innovation model, state funding, uh, block grant funding. We used the uh, CDC, the integrated, famously integrated but not integrated, chronic disease, 1422 and 1305 funding. So we pulled all of those funding together and then based on the work plans that the organizations develop, as they develop a plan of action, we ask them to truly identify the specific activity as it's connected with the different funding streams that we have. So we basically have a stepping process in the developing of a work plan and then of a work budget that captures at the activity level the different funding streams. So for example, let's suppose Initially, we identify for ourselves as a state all of the different fundings that are available for this purpose. So we had chronic disease funding, maternal and child health funding, diabetes, tobacco, obesity, whatever funding we are identifying as part of the braid. And then, as we know exactly how much funding we have from each categorical funding, we ask the health equity zones as part of their constructing their budget, they start identifying all of the different strategies at the line budget, at the line item in the budget. So they would have obesity strategies, uh, diabetes strategies, and so forth. And we then create what we're calling a distributed budget, which means that we pull from the identified funding streams the allocations based made based on the total funding that we have available and based on their work plan. This allows us to keep the integrity of each funding stream because we're pooling the funding stream that is needed for that specific activity. So for the agency itself, they don't see all of these maths that we're doing in the background, but we created the complicated spreadsheets, and I'm more than happy to share those with you at a later date. We created the spreadsheet that allows us to connect, to first identify all of the funding, available funding, then a work plan that has specific activities that then translate into a line budget, a budget that has line items, and we pull the funding to support those line items. Yeah, so particular funds support particular kinds of activities that are in their work plan. Yes, and, those... and because they are all connected, we are able to not only get the report in terms of the outcomes of that activity reported to us, and we can then report back to the federal government, keeping the integrity and the deliverables of the federal grant intact, while allowing us for this creativity in how we braid the funding that goes to each agency. Mm-hmm. And so each agency would have a different braid on a sense based on their work plan, on their identified priorities, and on the available availability of funding that we have at the state level. Were the, the interests of the community such that you were able to sort of draw from the different funding sources in proportion to the amount that they were contributing, or did you find that communities were gravitating towards particular strategies and to therefore particular kinds of funding? Yes. So, uh, for example, when we were relying a lot on 14, uh, I think was 1422 that had a lot of diabetes funding, uh-huh. uh, not all of the communities wanted to do 
uh, diabetes work and to implement the DPP and so forth interventions. And so we had more funding for diabetes that interest in the community level. And we needed to work with our communities to one see if they wanted to have if we could sparkle the interest from the community for them to do that work. And when they didn't, because the other thing that to find what other partner in the collaborative would be interested in doing the work. We use the collective impact framework, so we have a backbone organization that is who gets the funding initially directly and then disperses the funding to the other members of the collaborative as appropriately. So, for example, for diabetes, we end up having that conversation with the backbone organization to say how can they either expand, change, or that for them to acknowledge that we were going to need to probably engage in direct contracting outside of the collaborative and outside of the backbone organization to be able to spend that money. On other areas, is the opposite. So we had an overwhelming response for drug overdose prevention. Every single one of our health equity zones had identified opioid as an issue and a priority. We did not have enough funding at the beginning to do and respond, but we were able to use the fact that they had built that infrastructure and that we had supported the build out of the infrastructure to reach out to the behavioral health agency at the state level and say to them, how can you support this work? Here is the assessment that was done. Here are the evidence-based programs that they are using. Can we use some of your funding to, to put in these contracts so this community can respond? So it varies. Mm. You were also able to leverage the Rhode Island Foundation to enhance your grant-making abilities. What was that proposal like to the foundation and how has the partnership been working to improve local communities? It was a lot of education with our uh, stakeholders, partners at the state level, uh, kind of doing the same work at the state level as we are asking our communities to do, to collaborate, to align resources, to agree on a shared vision and then move forward. Uh, and while we do that easily with our partners, it doesn't mean that we do it as easily uh, at the state level. And so it was a long engagement with the Rhode Island Foundation talking over and over with them about the importance of shifting how they were doing investments at the local level to make sure that they were supporting the same kind of investments that we were making and that we were doing and the same kind of approach. And once they agree on the approach, because it's still their own competitive process, it was us working with the health equity zones to make sure that they were aware of that, that they were applying for the funding, and that they were doing so in a way that was not necessarily aligned with the work that was already in place, and so that it was complementary of the work that we had put forward. And so we were successful on a sense that they have six grantees, five of them were current health equity zones, and the sixth one was in fact a partner, a member of one health equity zone collaborative. It was not the backbone, but it was one of the member agencies. So this program has been going on for a few years now. What are some of the successes of this work? What challenges do you see in the future? So I think some of the challenges for me is how do you support the, an important component is the infrastructure of the backbone agency. And we didn't necessarily pay that much attention to the infrastructure of the backbone organization. And I think it's extremely important to be able to do that. Uh, how much do we 
work with the backbone organizations so they are able to be that glue. It's an important component. And so having funding that is not categorical funding for the activities and implementation itself, but to support that infrastructure is a challenge. In terms of outcomes, I can tell you that four years into implementation, here are some of the results that we have. And some of them are by statewide, for example. We've had an increase of 163% in community engagement. Just that for itself, for me, it's amazing. Uh, we've had impact where we have folks that now sitting that were residents that were disengaged were receiving services for week for SNAP. We have some of them now being sitting as a, a city council at the city where the health equity zone was. And those at times are difficult to present as a successful outcomes and measures uh, to our funders because they want to know what's the decrease in childhood lead poisoning prevention, what's the decrease in diabetes. But we also have some of those at the local level. So in one city, for example, in Pataket, we had a decrease in childhood lead poisoning of 44%. Central Falls, another health equity zone, we had a decrease in teen pregnancy of 24%. In two other health equity zones that focus on feelings of loneliness on the senior population, they had a decrease of 13%. In our diabetes prevention program statewide, uh, for 21% of the participants, we saw a decrease in body weight of 5 to 7%. We saw an increase of 40% in redemption of SNAPs farmers' market incentives. We saw an increase of 36% in access to fruits and vegetables. We saw more than a 1,000 graduates from evidence-based chronic disease self-management workshops statewide, more than a 1,000 graduates. We saw 46 opioid users being diverted from the criminal justice system in one small West Warwick city in Rhode Island. So that's the kind of outcomes that we are seeing along with these amazing community engagement and empowerment and ownership, taking their own health in their own hands and being a voice and speaking out loud where before they did not. The amount of energy that you see across these health equity zones is for me outside of those specific, very measurable individual outcomes, what I see statewide. That's very inspiring. Thank you. I know uh, Dr. Anthony Eiton, who's a leader in this field, talks about the importance of community engagement and uh, community participation as really key goals in this work. And the fact that this is a major outcome of your initiative really underscores that A, it matters, and B, you can really affect it by providing resources and the opportunity for communities to shape this. What opportunities are you working on now that, the, that are really exciting to you in terms of building health equity and reducing chronic disease burden through this approach? So one of the things that we're doing, uh, Dr. Alexander Scott, as you know, is ASTO's president. And so one of the ways that we are putting this work forward also at the national level, she's using these as the foundation of the ASTO President's Challenge. And ASTO made a commitment for the next two years to stay with this challenge and not just change. Uh, ASTO just released a request for um, states to apply for a learning collaborative in terms of how do we do this work at the local level. We also uh, 
got a, a received an award from Robert Johnson Foundation to be able to develop a toolkit on how to do this work both at the state level for other guidance for other state departments, but also at the local level guidance for local levels how to do this because as you know Rhode Island is unique on the sense that we don't have local health departments. Uh, the other thing that we're doing uh, to assure the sustainability of the initiative uh, it's also working with our legislators um, to build health equity zone champions at the legislature so we can see uh, have our own allocation for funding that allows us to better support the build out of the infrastructure and continue to expand uh, the program. We now have 10 health equity zones. We are finishing up the first cohort. We brought two, three new health equity zones to start a new cohort, the second cohort in, January, in uh, July, starting July 1st. We are uh, working with Working Cities Challenge from the Federal Reserve Bank and uh, we wanted to create the same kind of alignment that we had with the Rhode Island Foundation. And so we saw that two of the cities that came were Working Cities Challenge, funded by the Federal Reserve Bank. So it's aligning again and complementing the work being done at the local level, being mindful of that. And uh, we, we've been doing what we call legislative day has at the hill <laughs> and where we take our health equity zones to the to the our state house uh, and uh, they are uh, we bring all of their the legislators and they engage and they learn and so for the first time this year at the end of every budget hearing that we had I had at least one or two persons from the legislators saying coming and saying I'm a big has a fan and champion, and I'm going to work to put some funding together. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is having statewide conversations around equity. So we've, we have, for the past three years, have an annual health um, equity summit where we bring folks together at the state level, and we are starting to bring outside of the state, uh, to have this conversation. How are we successful in moving forward with a health equity agenda? And then internally, we've made health equity a very clear priority. It's a stated leading priority for our department, and we have the expect stated expectation and engagement with every single program within the department about what does health equity mean to your program, how does using these lens of equity change the way you do your business, um, and the way you do public health. It's bringing the laboratory, the nursing homes, because they all have a change to be made by using these lands in the way they do public health. And that's the next step that we're doing now. Well, it sounds like uh, you really had so many successes. You brought in additional resources uh, because of enthusiasm for this model. You've increased community levels of engagement, and you've produced some really meaningful health outcomes, and now you've begun to win legislative champions for this effort uh, to perhaps even broaden that and really move into a national perspective to do technical assistance to other states who want to follow your lead. So I congratulate you for the outstanding success, and thank you very much for the outstanding model and leadership you all have shown us. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It's, uh, it's been a great challenge, but we have a, a great team uh, here in Rhode Island. Uh, with Carol and everybody else in the team that has 
a challenge and being challenged by it, but pushing forward and stay true to the model. It's been, it's been an honor. So thank you for asking us to share too. We appreciate and uh, look forward to other ways and times to collaborate with uh, the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Is there a place that uh, people who are listening uh, to this podcast can go on your website to learn more about the braiding of funding and the health equity zones in Rhode Island? Oh, absolutely. Um, that is, uh, if they go to www.health.ri.gov slash forward, has H E Z, they will find all of these information. So, uh, for the audience, that URL is health.ri.gov uh, forward slash H E Z, H E Z standing for Health Equity Zones. So, please go there for more information, and we'll uh, have links uh, to those web resources available to you from the website leading to this podcast. Thank you. Folks need to understand that while it's not easy to do the braided funding, it's challenging, it's cumbersome, but it's possible. And that's, I think, what at the end of the day matters. We sometimes shy away from doing this kind of comprehensive work because we don't have funding. But every single funding stream that we get from the feds does say to address the social determinants, does say to address to achieve equity. So if we truly challenge ourselves, I think sometimes the barriers are more perceived than real and we can find ways to work around them. Anna, thank you so much for your time today. This is a great story for our listeners and we really appreciate you sharing it with us. So thank you so much for inviting us to share. Thank you for listening to Health To Be Determined, a podcast brought to you by the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Please visit www.chronicdisease.org to listen to more podcasts like this one.